If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 573. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. Get coupons when I send those out. You can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. It keeps this podcast free of charge. It's a win-win. You get great content and you keep the free stuff going. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also buy a book plate if you want to autograph one of my books. Purchase one of my books. You've got those anywhere books are sold online. My latest, The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Excellent books. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share this podcast around on social media. Get people involved in the show. That's how we grow the audience and we get more people interested in the principles of self-determination. Also, local government, taking care of your own business. These are important things, important concepts. When we have such a monstrosity in Washington, D.C., one-size-fits-all government, everybody's angry. There's a solution out there, but that solution is required for... Uh, the future of America. If we want to rescue this, we have to work from the bottom up. So we're going to do a little debunking of leftist historians, quote unquote historians. We're going to really what we're talking about are activists. You see, I want to make a point here. There are activists and there are historians. And essentially what we're going to do this week is talk about how, number one, we have two very important left-wing activists, and then we have a right-wing, quote-unquote, right-wing activist doing essentially the same thing. There's no difference in these people. And I, and I point this out all the time. They, they think the same. It's just that, and they want the central government to do what they want it to do. And if it's not doing something on the left, they're irritated. If they're on the left, not doing something on the right, they're irritated on the right. But that's the, that's the incorrect solution to all of this. And it's all based on history. History has become the most weaponized thing in America. And it's incorrect. It's wrong. right? We don't seek to understand anymore. We seek to weaponize and say, okay, well, um, these people were bad, so we can't be like these people, or uh, look at how horrible these people are, so we need to correct that all the time. Now, granted, people since, uh, since the Roman historians, since the Greek historians were saying you could do this, right? If you look at the reason why people studied history, I could go back and do a lecture, and I've thought about doing this, on quotations about history. You go back to the Roman historians, Greek historians, they all said this. Well, history can be used, essentially, to identify what's good and bad about a, about a people or a place, and we can emulate the good stuff and reject the bad stuff. This is true. But what these people are doing, 
more importantly, is reinterpretation. These are the real revisionists. They're the real revisionists because they're saying things that aren't based in reality. And I'm going to talk about two of them this week. We've got a really good week. One is a Pennsylvania State University professor who has a lecture on C-SPAN now. Another is uh, a historian who's pretty popular on social media. Um, She's been around for about 30 years, written a number of books on the South, and all of them are garbage. Uh, because they're all just activism masquerading as, a story, as history. And the, le- the most recent one is purely laughable. And I'm going to cover that book, at least some of it, on this particular show this week. We're going to talk about a piece at townhall.com from Wayne Allen Root. This is supposedly a conservative, and we're going to look at how he says some things that are just absolutely ridiculous. And then to wrap it up, I'm going to do a listener-generated episode this week, and it's going to be, um, the, a question was asked, I use the term Yankee. And this turns some people off when I start talking about Yankees. They get very offended by that because they think that I'm just talking about all Northerners. I'm not talking about anybody else but Northerners. This is simply not true. And I'm going to get into that. And I'm going to use another historian who is actually a very good historian to explain what I'm talking about there. And I've done this before with political Puritans. So anyways, that's how we're going to set up the week. I'm going to start with this Pennsylvania State University professor, though, in the Confederate Constitution. So this is a lecture on C-SPAN. The professor is Rachel Sheldon. She is uh, teaching a class on the Civil War as a constitutional crisis. And so there's so much that's laughable about this lecture. I mean, so, so much that's ridiculously stupid that I, wouldn't, I couldn't do just one episode on this. It's an hour and 15-minute lecture. It's you know Tuesday, Thursday class hour and 15 minute lecture and she's got these young minds of mushing out there oh just nodding along yeah okay okay taking their little notes as she's going through things and she says things that are uh, look they're indoctrination okay she'll say things like now we know because of this this is this there's no debate there's no discussion it's just this is my way this is exactly right there's nothing about this and she's doing it and see this is what these people do because they think there's this boogeyman out there that's telling everybody everybody believes it's something else and we have to enforce this this is what it really is and look I gave you this document to show it one of the things and it was sent to me by a colleague of mine one of the things that she said in there, uh, that was just completely stupid. This is the thing that he said. He said, do you believe the stupidity? Was that somehow South Carolina believed that when they left the United States in 1860, they dissolved the entire Union? Now, that would have been news to South Carolina, who also, in good faith, sent, sent commissioners to the United States government to negotiate for federal property within the state. This is, I mean, this is, this is, so if they believed the union was dissolved, then there would have been no United States government to negotiate with. So, I mean, what's going on here? If they really thought that, and of course she points out, well, Mississippi said the same thing. The union's dissolved. Look at these newspapers. The union is dissolved. The union between South Carolina and the rest of the states was, yes, dissolved, but not the union between New York and Pennsylvania or New York and Virginia. That union still existed, but they were out of the union. It's exactly how they thought about it. There's no question this is how they were thinking about these things. Not that the United States was dissolved. In fact, this was pointed out 
The United States government is not dissolved. We still have an army. We still have a navy. We still have a bank. We st still have government. All this is still here. The union is not really dissolved. Just some states have left the union. Now, of course, Sheldon is basing this on Lincoln's stupidity as well. His distortion of what the union actually meant. So there's that part of it, which is a completely ridiculous. I mean, it's laughable on its head. But... Uh, but the fact is, she says so many other things that are ridiculously stupid in this lecture, and there's one that really stuck out to me. It's because these people don't really know what they're talking about. She doesn't really know what she's talking about, and here she is, an associate professor of history, meaning she's tenured. She's tenured. And she's talking about uh, the, the war as a constitution. She doesn't really know it. She doesn't understand the constitution. Now she gets in this idea that all compromises broke down. One of the things, another thing she said is that she, she distorts what really happened. She brings up the committee of 13, which was a Senate committee established to sift through some of the compromise proposals that were presented during this secession winter, right? The sectional crisis had reached a boiling point. We've got states out and at least South Carolina's out. And they're still talking about what can we do to save the union, right? This is in that period between Lincoln's election and when the other deep south states started seceding from the union, okay, in early 1861. So we have the Crittenden Compromise. Now, what the way she presents it is that there was there were seven Democrats and five Republicans on this committee. She is correct when she said there was a there was a rule put in place that there had to be majorities of both. Republicans and Democrats for any compromise proposal to pass. So when the Crittenden Compromise was presented to the committee, it failed. She blames that on Jefferson Davis and Robert Toombs, essentially, who did not vote for it. What she leaves out is that no Republican was going to vote for it either. So the dual majorities, it would have passed. All the Democrats would have voted for it. All the Republicans would have rejected it. So therefore, it would have failed the dual majority principle. And why did the Republicans not vote for it? Because they were being told by Abraham Lincoln in private letters, don't vote for it. Don't vote for it. So who really failed? Was it Jefferson Davis? Was it the South that refused to compromise? Absolutely not. It was the Republican Party. The sectional Republican Party that had no support in the South. It was a minority party. And it's the one that was blocking any compromise that would have saved the Union. So was it the South that really didn't want to save the Union? Was it the South that didn't want to compromise? Absolutely not. It was the Republican Party. She conveniently leaves that out and says, in fact, that it was Jefferson Davis who refused to compromise. So this is a lie. She's absolutely lying, and this is C-SPAN. So now this thing is out there. This is what she's doing. It's stupid. But then she puts up a slide. This is one that really just made me laugh out loud. Because this kind of stuff is now circulating around. And I actually called out another historian on this. And she admits it, that she basically lies when she goes around tr trumpeting all this stuff. I called her out on it, and I knocked her down. But yet it didn't matter. All her little minions tried to jump on me. And of course, they all lost. But the thing is, here we go. Her lie is that the Confederate Constitution prohibited secession. Now, this is based on the fact that in the preamble of the Confederate Constitution, it says to form a permanent federal government. So because it says it's permanent, you can't get rid of it. You can't dissolve it. You can't get rid of it. But that's not necessarily the case. 
In fact, the only full-length monograph that's ever been written on the Confederate Constitution, published by uh, University of Missouri Press, by the way, in 1991, it's by Marshall DeRosa, The Confederate Constitution of 1861. It is a fantastic book. I guarantee Rachel Sheldon has never written, never read this book. I guarantee it because if she had, she wouldn't make this statement. I guarantee you that she doesn't really understand constitutionalism or federalism or anything. She doesn't really understand it. She understands Lincoln's position, but she doesn't really understand what it meant, what a federal republic meant, what reserve powers meant, what the what Article One, Section Ten meant, or Article One. Section 1, essentially, what any of that meant. All right, so this is the book, The Confederate Constitution of 1861 by Marshall DeRosa, who teaches at Florida Atlantic University. Uh, I read this book when I was an undergraduate. It was brand new when, when I read it. Now it's been out for you know 30 years, practically. Um, and so, actually, it has been out 30 years. Um, but I want, to, I want to read the section that he covers secession. And the Confederate Constitution, he covers this. He, dis- he discusses it because anticipating where this was going to go. You see, the argument is, of course, is secession is not allowed in the U.S. Constitution. It's not allowed. And, of course, Sheldon's going to bring up Cynthia Nicoletti, who kind of says the same thing in her book on secession. But, again, Nicoletti, I think, is mistaken. She doesn't really know. These people don't understand American constitutionalism. If they did, they would go back and look and say, well, wait a second here. Northerners are starting to talk about secession in 1794. They all understood you could secede from the Union. It was a voluntary compact. The states joined voluntarily, and as they joined voluntarily, it did not become perpetual or permanent. You could get out of it. It was perpetual, right? But I mean, permanent. You could get out of it. Now, the term permanent is what throws them all off. So let me explain how Marshall DeRosa says this. And this was openly discussed in uh, in the process of creating the Confederate Constitution. He says, the right of secession from a federal compact depends upon the status of sovereignty. As was mentioned above, the U.S. Constitution is ambiguous concerning state sovereignty, whereas the CSA Constitution preamble recognizes the, quote, sovereign and independent character of each state. So therefore, the states are sovereign in this, whereas they were in the U.S. Constitution. But what they were trying to do for the Confederacy is ensure that this language was unambiguous. It was clear as day. This is what it meant. Reproaching the secessionists in his first inaugural address, President Lincoln maintained, quote, that no state upon its mere own mere motion can lawfully get out of the Union, that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstance. End quote. The South, meanwhile, maintained that the whole question is whether or not the state can release their citizens from their obligations of the, to the federal authority and protect them under the sufficient shield of her own sovereign, sovereign authority. Hapless would be the condition of these states if their only alternative lay between submission to a government of, self-const- of self-construed, or in other words, unlimited powers, and the certainty of coercion in case of withdrawal by force of arms. The way of escape from both extremes is the acknowledged right of secession. So it would be, the states would be powerless indeed if they had to either submit to the center or they had to withdraw by force of arms. Secession, peaceful secession. So here we have the southern states saying peaceful secession. 
is the way forward because then therefore you can just get out of this thing if you don't like it. In fact, this is what Nathaniel Macon said in the early 19th century during the first nullification uh, crisis in the 1830s. He said, look, nullification's a dumb idea. Just secede. Just secede. We'll just get out, right? We're not going to nullify. We're going to get out. Or I should say the the big nullification crisis of 1830, not the first one. If you look at nullification was long before that. So then DeRosa continues. He says, The question naturally comes to mind. If the CSA was committed to the state's right doctrine, especially in light of the historical developments of the antebellum period, why did the states not expressly constitutionally mandate a state's right of secession? The answer to this question is threefold. First, the framers of the CSA Constitution contended that they were seceding on behalf of the U.S. Constitution and not because they were opposed to its principles. This is important. So he's saying, look, why didn't they spell out in the CSA Constitution states have a right to secede? So the first is, they were seceding on the principles of the U.S. Constitution, not because they were opposed to it. And he, this, is, this becomes apparent. He says, look, the claim was consistently reiterated that because of this commitment to the principles embodied in the U.S. Constitution, the CSA Constitution was to be patterned after it. With the exception of Florida, six of the original states forming the Confederacy directed their delegates to draft a constitution that adhered to the principles of the U.S. document. Mississippi's directive to his delegates is typical. Quote, that the people of the state of Mississippi hereby com- consent to a form to form a federal union with such states as have seceded or may secede from the United States of America upon the basis of the present constitution of the said United States. Well, here's the thing. Rachel Sheldon would say that they thought the union was dissolved. Well, here is the state of Mississippi. She said the state of Mississippi said this. Here is the state of Mississippi saying that there still is the United States of America. If the union was dissolved, there's no United States of America anymore. So Rachel Sheldon hasn't even read the documentation. This is a great associate professor of history at Penn State University who doesn't know anything. Their affinity for the U.S. Constitution included the understanding that it did not deny the right of secession, but implicitly protected that right as a prerogative of state sovereignty. They claimed that it was fallacious construction that had cast doubts on the right of secession. To draft their Confederate Constitution with the express right of secession would, it was claimed, by yielding to the Northern interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that if such a right is not expressly granted, it does not constitutionally exist. This they were not about to do. That last sentence is important. If they put in the Constitution, express language saying secession is expressly granted, then they would be denying that they could leave the U.S. Constitution, that they could leave the United States of America. So by not putting it in there, they they essentially defended their right to secede from the U.S. Constitution or from the United States government. They, They expressly protected that by doing it. So the principles hadn't changed. Secession was the right of the states. It's not denied by the U.S. Constitution, so therefore you can do it. It's not denied by the Confederate Constitution, so therefore you can do it. There's nothing in the Confederate Constitution that says a state cannot secede from the Union. It doesn't exist. This is like one of the other myths that's running around, and I've done this before, that somehow uh, the Confederate Constitution did not allow the states to abolish slavery. This is completely untrue. In fact, DeRosa gets into that too. States could abolish slavery. 
Same thing as in the U.S. Constitution. The central government couldn't do it, but the states could. Even though, of course, they talked about the central government doing it during the war. So the fact is, because the Confederate Constitution doesn't deny the right of secession, the right of secession exists, just as under the U.S. Constitution. I don't think Rachel Sheldon can get this. It's like she can't understand it. I will say, I mean, well, I'm not going to go into that low. She can't understand it. Okay, so uh, th- this is part now. Now, second, he says, second, the seven, the, the, uh, seven southern states that had initially seceded from the Union had the practical problem of attracting the valuable, uh, I'm sorry, the variable border states into the Confederacy. Virginia was especially reluctant to join the Confederacy, lacking a viable central government. To mandate constitutionally the right, constitutionally, I'm sorry, the right of secession would give the appearance of a loose league of disparate states held together by a feeble central government not destined to endure. In reference to the U.S. Constitution, Jefferson Davis made a similar deduction. The simple truth is that it would have been a very extraordinary thing to incorporate into the Constitution any express provision for the secession of the states and the dissolution of the Union. Its founders undoubtedly desired and hoped that it would be perpetual. Against the proposition for power to coerce a state, the argument was that it would be a means, not of preserving, but of destroying the Union. It was not for them to make arrangements for its termination, a calamity with which there was no occasion to provide for in advance. It was not necessary in the Constitution to affirm the right of secession because it was an attribute of sovereignty and the states had reserved all they had not delegated. End quote. Consequently, the CSA framers decided to make the right of secession constitutionally implicit by explicitly recognizing the sovereign independent character of the states, thereby providing the central government with the appearance of viability that otherwise might be lacking. So Virginia thought, well, if we can just get out of it, we're not going to have a a strong central government. This is why they said permanent federal government. But they didn't deny the right of secession, as Jefferson Davis said, in the Confederate Constitution. Here's the president of the Confederacy saying the secession is still a viable option, even in this government. It still exists because the states can do it. But we would hope by this government, if we all agree on the principles of it, nobody's going to want to leave. Same thing with the U.S. Constitution. Nobody really wanted the Union to be dissolved. In fact, keeping the Union together was a primary argument for ratification of the Constitution. Nobody wanted that to happen, but they all recognized it could happen. Edmund Randolph's entire approach to ratifying the Constitution was, we got to keep the Union together because if we don't, it's going to be a calamity. Well, if you say we got to keep it together, what does that mean? It can be dissolved. It could not exist. So you got to keep it together. This doesn't mean they believe that when one state left the Union, the Union was dissolved. No, the Union between that state and the rest of the Union was dissolved, but not the entire Union. Though you could see a day that the entire Union could be dissolved. We can get rid of the entire central government. Heck, that's the entire point of the Declaration. We could get rid of the whole thing. In fact, they did in 1787 and 1788. They got rid of the first central authority and replaced it with another. Some have argued that's an act of secession. Now, I'm, I'm, I can see both sides on that issue. And then third, and third, and most importantly, the CSA Constitution has a, a covenant component establishing a central government held together by the consent and good faith of its members, not by coercion. In other words, it is a voluntary association grounded in a transcendental order. In this concept, context, I'm sorry, a covenant differs from a compact in that its moral dimensions take precedent over its legal dimensions. 
In its heart of hearts, a covenant is an agreement in which a higher moral force, traditionally God, is, the, in either, is either a direct party to our uh, guarantee or of a particular relationship. Whereas when the term compact is used, moral force is only indirectly involved. A compact based on its mutual pledges rather than guarantees by or before a higher authority rests more heavily on a legal, though still ethical, grounding for its politics. In other words, compact is a secular phenomenon. This is not meant to imply that the U.S. Constitution is exclusively a secular document lacking elements of a covenant tradition. Rather, what is asserted is that the CSA Constitution explicitly invokes, quote, the favor and guidance of Almighty God in his preamble, thereby making the supreme being a guarantor of the Constitution. This led Thomas Reed Roots Cobb to conclude that the CSA Constitution, quote, acknowledged the overruling providence of God. The U.S. Constitution lacks such a reference so that extent so to that extent it is a secular document so i bring that up because of the first two points not the last but i mean the first two points the last is important but again rachel sheldon has missed the entire point of federalism of a compact of reserved power she doesn't understand it and of course just by looking at it, this is the danger of textualism. Well, what does it mean? Permanent federal union. Therefore, if it's permanent, you can't get rid of it. And so therefore, secession is illegal. But that's not what they said. That's not what they said at all. So when you just look at the text and you have no understanding of the history behind it, well, you could come to that conclusion. This is a historian, by the way, who's really just an activist masquerading as a historian. This is a historian teaching young minds of mush at Penn State lies falsehoods. She doesn't understand the complexity of anything. She doesn't understand the topic. She doesn't understand the history. She doesn't understand any of it. And yet somehow she's a tenured professor. It's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. Embarrassing. And needs to be called out for it. So when these people decide they're actually going to tell the truth about these things, then maybe you know, we could stop. Some people would say, of course, that they're telling the truth. And I'm going to get into Karen Cox tomorrow's episode, on tomorrow's episode, and explain some of the funniest things she said and how hilarious it actually is. Using this, this lecture by Rachel Sheldon as an example in one way. How hilarious some of the things she says about what histor historians are doing. They're, they're going out there and fighting the power. Rachel Sheldon is spreading lies, and now C-SPAN has covered those lies and put them out there when they're simply not true. And easy to find evidence that they're not true. Yet, she's saying this is, well, we know this, we know this, because I gave you this document, and look at this right here. Look at this from the state of South Africa. It says the union is dissolved. <clears throat> the union between South Carolina and the United States was dissolved. But not the entire union. Yes, the union could have been dissolved if every state decided they were. I mean, Southerners did believe now that eventually enough states would join the Confederate States Constitution, free states as well, that the entire United States would eventually be dissolved because people would realize how stupid the United States Constitution was and actually embrace this new constitution that was better. Or maybe there would still be United States in the north somewhere. There would be something else like the, the northern United States Confederacy or something. This would, this would be something that could happen. The founding genera generation recognized this could happen. 
And it was fine for some of them. Some of them that were re very fearful of this. But that idea of union is very important. All right. So I thought this was important. I actually get into the Confederate Constitution in my American Constitutions class at McClanahan Academy. We talk about it there. I've covered the Confederate Constitution before in other parts of this podcast. Um, so this is not something new that I've done, but I wanted to begin this week with this, and we're going to get into an even more egregious and hilarious distortion of, of evidence when we get to Karen Cox. So I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.